Good evening. On behalf of the Faculty Development Committee, I would like to welcome you to this um, 25th Annual Melby Lecture Series. The lectures are dedicated to Carl Melby, who was St. Olaf Professor from 1901 to 1949. And our collective institutional memory remembers Carl Melby as a teacher and scholar of unusual brilliance and versatility. Uh, he taught, and I'm going to read this, he taught courses in economics, sociology, political science, art history, Greek, German, French, religion, and philosophy. In short, he was the liberal arts college incarnate. <laughs> Melby Lecture Series features our outstanding teachers and scholars. Our today's Melby Lecturer, Professor of History and Asian Studies, Robert Entenman, is admired by his students and colleagues alike. As excellent teacher and scholar, his breadth and depth of knowledge is deeply respected by this community and the community outside of St. Olaf College. I would be remiss if I did not mention that Bob has been teaching a Chinese flag for many years. And on a more personal note, I'd like to thank you, Bob, for giving me an opportunity to wear my Chinese robe, <laughs> which I usually don't dare to do for fear of advertising um, a competing entity here on campus. But I think today it's appropriate, so thank you again. I'm going to ask Professor Ed Langerich, Professor of Philosophy, to come and introduce Robert Entenman properly to you. Thank you. Thank you, Irina. And I'm not going to repeat the uh, impressive accomplishments of Bob that are listed in the brochure that you all have, um, though uh, you might note the sort of hotel that he frequents. <laughs> and I think we should note that Bob's wife, Sarah, insisted that the Sarah Johnson Fellowship was non-renewable. And that's what put Bob on the job market fortuitously the same year St. Olaf needed to hire someone in his specialty. So thank you very much, Sarah. I'm grateful that he came, not just because of his impressive teaching and research, but also his excellent campus citizenship. For example, Bob is currently president of the St. Olaf AAUP, that's the American Association of University Professors, uh, the local chapter. Um, just to be a member is a sign of responsible citizenship. You feed the watchdog of academic freedom, even when it doesn't have to be barking. But he's president because of his fair-minded, practical wisdom. When he talks, the rest of us listen. And more impressively, when we talk, he listens. He told me that the Tenure and Promotion Committee was one of the most interesting that he served on and also a humbling one when he saw the impressive work that so many of his colleagues were doing. Well, I'm humbled at his accomplishments, all the languages he knows and the way he puts them to excellent use, and at his publications. But here's a little secret. His first publication is not listed in his Vita. So it's not that Mademoiselle magazine article 
that was so frustratingly but flatteringly purloined from the St. Olaf copy. No, his first publication was when he was 15 years old. He was an avid stamp collector and published an article in 1964 entitled British Forgeries of German Stamps During World War II. <laughs> I'll bet this is an important piece of history that you didn't know about. But the Germans were fascinated. He published it in that well-known journal, The Germany Postal Specialist. <laughs> so, let's welcome our own distinguished colleague and friend, whose accomplishment, unlike his hobby, are hard to lick, Bob Entman, speaking on the life and times of Andreas I don't think my colleagues know about my uh, article on British forgeries of German stamps in World War II. Well, some of them know about it now. Uh, thank you, Ed, for that uh, generous introduction. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking a few other people uh, as well, the Faculty Development Committee for giving me this opportunity to uh, share my work with you. Uh, also, my colleagues in the History and uh, Asian Studies departments who have uh, supported my work in many ways. Uh, also, some uh, members of another department, uh, Jim May, Ann Groton, and Steve Reese, whose uh, Latin classes I sat in on. Uh, the reason why this is so important, I think, will become obvious. Uh, also, Wendy Allen for letting me sit in one of her French classes. Um, my training in Chinese history didn't really prepare me for using some of these uh, other languages. Um, I also have to thank uh, my longtime collaborator and editor, Sarah, um, for many things, including being a single parent when I was off to China or Europe uh, doing research or going to conferences. Uh, Sarah's uh, shared uh, me with Andreas Lee for many years. Uh, Lee is, uh, Andreas Lee is a Chinese Catholic priest who died uh, 233 years ago. Uh, this evening I'd like to introduce Lee to you. Um, it's, I think it's always nice to have a kind of an image of what of the person you're talking about, but unfortunately there are no pictures of Andreas Lee and we don't have any descriptions of uh, what he looks like. I can say that I, I imagine him late in his life, uh, in his late 70s, um, graying hair, uh, a wispy beard. Uh, actually, in my imagination, he looks a lot like Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the best I could do. Um, but uh, let me start by explaining how I encountered uh, Lee. Uh, 25 years ago, I finished finally finished my dissertation. It was entitled Migration and Settlement to Sichuan, uh, Migration and Settlement in Sichuan 1644 to 1796. And uh, Sichuan, for those of you who haven't been there, uh, is a province in southwestern China. It borders on Tibet uh, to the west and uh, the multi-ethnic Chinese provinces of Yunnan and Guizhou to the south. Uh, who not, well, I, I won't list all these provinces it borders on, but uh, there it is in orange on the map. Um, it's in, 
the 18th century was, uh, this province was roughly the size of France. It's a little bit smaller now because uh, 10 years ago the eastern part was separated and turned into uh, the separate provincial level municipality of Chongqing or Chongqing to those of you who are familiar with the older English name. Uh, but uh, in area, it's an enormous place. It was the size of uh, France, roughly. Uh, in the 18th century, this province uh, became uh, China's most heavily province, a uh, heavily uh, populated province because of migration from South and Central China. And by 1800, it had about 40 million people. Uh, today, uh, Sichuan and uh, Chongqing together have about 120 million people, which would make it the eighth or ninth largest country in the world if it were independent. But one of the things I looked at in my dissertation was the way that um, voluntary associations provided migrants with uh, mutual support, uh, protection, companionship, a sense of community. And among these groups, uh, among these uh, institutions were religious groups uh, which proliferated in the uh, newly settled areas of Sichuan. Uh, the state considered some of these uh, religions heterodox, like the millenarian White Lotus sect that grew out of popular Buddhism. Uh, White Lotus followers rose up in a major rebellion in 1796. That's why I have the end date, that end date in my dissertation. Uh, this uh, White Lotus uprising took eight years uh, to suppress. As this rebellion was breaking out, uh, the Chinese scholar Hong Liangji uh, warned that uh, dangerous heterodox religions were leading people astray, particularly the White Lotus sect and the religion of the Lord of Heaven. Uh, two decades later, Yan Rui, an official who was involved in the suppression of the White Lotus sect, also warned about the dangerous, subversive religions uh, proliferating in the region, the White Lotus sect, the Pure Fragrance sect, the Complete and, uh, and Immediate sect, and the Lord of Heaven sect. Uh, most of these religions were part of the White Lotus tradition, but the Lord of Heaven sect was not. Uh, the Lord of Heaven sect, or Tianju Jiao, uh, you could also translate it as the Lord of Heaven religion, uh, this was the Chinese, and still is the Chinese name for Roman Catholic Christianity. And both writers classified uh, Catholicism with the White Lotus sect among the perverse and heterodox religions that were proliferating in Sichuan. And like the White Lotus sect and some other popular religious sects, Catholicism was illegal. Uh, one thing I should say is that I, uh, I'm going to use the words a Catholic and Christian interchangeably, uh, not that I think they're identical, but uh, because in the 18th century all of the Christians in China were Catholic, uh, Protestant missions did not begin until the 19th century. But as I looked into the subject, uh, Chinese Catholics in this area intrigued me more and more. It's something I sort of stumbled upon uh, during my dissertation research. Uh, Roman Catholic missions uh, had begun in China in the late 16th century, and by 1700 there were uh, as many as 300,000 Catholics in China. In 1724, the Chinese government outlawed Christianity, and it did so partially because Chinese Catholics were under the religious authority of foreign missionaries, 
and partially because of the so-called rights controversy in which uh, the church had forbidden Chinese Catholics from engaging in uh, rituals honoring their ancestors or honoring Confucius. Uh, these were rituals that the Chinese state regarded uh, essential to the social and political order. Uh, officials uh, used uh, persuasion as well as uh, coercion to try to suppress Christianity. And uh, here's a placard uh, put up by a uh, Chinese official in Sichuan in 16, I mean 1753. And this placard warns that the perverse religion of Catholicism turns people into pigs and dogs and makes them sink into hell. <laughs> I, I do want to assure my Catholic friends and the audience that I very strongly disagree. <laughs> um, this is a Lutheran institution, but we've gotten over those uh, prejudices. Um, well, persecution uh, of Catholics in China during the uh, hundred years that the religion was outlawed from 17, uh, well, 120 years really, from uh, 1724 to the uh, seven, uh, eight, 1840s, uh, during this period, persecution was not continuous. And for many uh, Catholics, they were able to carry on their religion, practice their religion uh, secretly, but more or less securely, always wary of the authorities. But uh, because of persecution and the trouble with uh, uh, limited access that missionaries had to China during this time, uh, the number of Chinese Christians uh, declined dramatically over the course of the 18th century. Uh, Sichuan province, uh, this province back here, was different. And there the number of Catholics grew tenfold in the second half of the 18th century. By 1800, there were 40,000 Catholics in Sichuan. This is uh, definitely a, a tiny minority, one-tenth of one percent of the population, but it was a minority that was growing uh, very rapidly. Uh, Sichuan's uh, social environment and relatively weak uh, government control allowed uh, Christianity and other illegal religions like the White Lotus to flourish. And during this time, much of the day-to-day -day leadership of the Chinese Catholic community was in the hands of the Chinese. Uh, some served as lay congregational leaders. Uh, some served as itinerant lay preachers. Uh, there were celibate women known as Christian virgins who taught uh, schools, uh, taught uh, Catholic children in schools, including schools for girls. Uh, but unlike the White Lotus followers, Chinese Catholics belonged to a worldwide church. And uh, it was still possible for missionaries to make their way clandestinely into the hinterland. And over the course of the uh, 18th century, 27 French missionaries, along with five other European missionaries, served in Sichuan. But significantly, in the same period, these European missionaries were outnumbered by the 33 Chinese priests uh, serving in the province. And the proportion of Chinese clergy gradually increased over the course of the century. By 1800, of the two dozen Catholic priests in, China, in Sichuan, 21 were Chinese and three were Europeans. As I started looking at this subject, it seemed to me that one could look at the history of Christianity uh, in China th through a new angle. Uh, the story until recently has been told uh, through a European missiological perspective, 
uh, part of the history of uh, European uh, Christian missions. Uh, this approach has its limitations. It's Eurocentric. It regards European missionaries as a subject and the Chinese uh, Christians as the object of this narrative. Uh, older studies often have been uh, hagiographical. Uh, they've been uncritical, uh, often uncritical and uh, shaped by Christian triumphalism. As I became interested in the subject, it seemed to me that these Chinese Catholics could be studied in a new way in the context of Chinese social history, uh, in the context of Chinese culture as an expression of Chinese popular religion. Uh, treating the Chinese Christians themselves as the uh, subject rather than the object of the narrative and drawing on Chinese as well as Western sources. Uh, fortuitously, others were thinking along the same lines and I received a postdoctoral fellowship from the History of Christianity in China Project uh, funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and directed by Daniel Bayes at the University of uh, Kansas. Uh, one of my challenges was finding sources uh, for much of the 18th century, Sichuan was under the mission uh, jurisdiction of a French missionary organization, uh, the Société de Mission, Missions Étrangères de Paris. Uh, one of my challenges, I have to say, is pronouncing French. And uh, I apologize for my accent. I'll try my best. But uh, French missionaries in Sichuan sent hundreds of letters and reports back to Paris where they're kept in the archives of the Missions Étrangères. And I have to say, I did not mind going to Paris to uh, read these uh, letters. Uh, the archives are still housed in the same building that has housed uh, the uh, Mission, uh, Missions Entregères uh, since uh, 1662. It's a, uh, an enormous uh, edifice with, uh, that surrounds a uh, private garden, a huge private garden. So. If you ever use the archives and you need a break, you can wander around and, uh, among the trees there. Um, these uh, letters and reports sent back by uh, French missionaries are wonderful, wonderfully rich uh, sources. But uh, I also sought out Chinese sources in the uh, Sichuan Provincial Archives. And I don't have a picture of that building, but I do have a picture of one of the documents I Xeroxed. Uh, this is uh, an a record of an interrogation of a Chinese Catholic early in the 19th century. Uh, these uh, Sichuan provincial archives, though, also present uh, some problems or uh, limitations. Um, government archives naturally hold government documents, and in this case, these are reports of investigations uh, and arrests of Chinese Catholics, uh, decrees, uh, uh, against uh, Christianity by local officials, records of confessions by Chinese Catholics. Uh, these documents reveal a lot about uh, relations between Chinese Catholics and the state, but of course they're products of persecution. And most of the time, Catholics in Sichuan uh, led quiet and uneventful lives as long as they stayed out of sight. And generally speaking, local officials preferred to pretend that the Catholics didn't exist because if they'd find them, they'd have to do something about them. And that was often more trouble than it was worth. So on the local level, unless they were pressed from the central government, local officials 
generally uh, followed a kind of a policy of tacit toleration of the Catholics in normal times. So these documents don't reveal much about uh, the day-to-day -day lives of Chinese Catholics in normal times. Uh, another problem is that most of the early documents in these archives have been lost. Uh, there are very few from uh, before 1810, which coincidentally was the beginning uh, of a very serious and deadly persecution uh, in Sichuan. Uh, but this is why the journal of Andreas Lee is so valuable. Uh, I'll say more about Lee himself in a couple of minutes, but the, this journal covers the life of uh, this Chinese priest for a period of about 16 years from 1747 to 1763. And it runs um, 677 pages in the uh, printed version published in 1906. Bill Dunn there uh, has uh, the, the volume. Uh, Lee wrote his journal as a report on his activities and he sent it by courier uh, to the Portuguese settlement of Macau, this tiny 12 square mile enclave on the South China coast. And from there it was sent on to Paris. And um, I have a picture of it. It's not a very good picture, but here it is sitting on my desk in the archives. That's the, um, the diary and there's my little pocket Latin dictionary there. Um, it, but uh, fortunately, well, the, uh, the manuscript version actually has some things that the published version doesn't have. It has some Chinese characters in the margins, a few things that the published version left out. But uh, I've mainly been using the published version, and here is a copy of the title page. Uh, my greatest challenge, though, was that uh, Lee wrote the diary in the language of the church, Latin. And uh, it became clear to me that if I wanted to pursue this topic seriously, I would have to start studying Latin. So in 1986, I sat in the back of Jim May's Latin 111 class and uh, didn't take it for credit, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been working on it ever since then. Latin is a difficult language for me. I think it is for most people. Uh, for me, I, uh, I find it harder than Chinese. Well, how did an 18th century Chinese come to write a journal in Latin? Um, I think now it's time for me to talk about Li himself. Uh, Li was born into a Chinese Catholic family in uh, 1693. His uh, family apparently had been Catholic for several generations. His ancestors had been among the first uh, converts. Uh, when uh, Li was born, Christianity was still legal and tolerated in China. Uh, when he was baptized, his uh, priest gave him the baptismal name of Andreas, or Anda in Chinese. His Chinese name is Li Anda. Um, one of the strange things about the diary is that uh, Li refers not only to himself, but all other Chinese Catholics by their Latin names. Uh, when Li was about 10, his family entrusted him to Jean Basset, uh, a French missionary to be educated. Uh, four years later, the rights controversy broke out, the, uh, a conflict between Catholic missionaries and the Chinese emperor, uh, basically over rights honoring ancestors and honoring Confucius. And this uh, forced Basset and the three other European missionaries in uh, Sichuan to leave. Uh, Li left with them at the age of 14 and accompanied them to Macau, 
which is located very close to Hong Kong. Hong Kong did not actually exist at that time. The peninsula did, but the city did not. Uh, there in Macau, the papal legate, uh, Bishop de Tournon, asked the consent of European priests in Macau to prepare Lee and uh, the other uh, two other boys for the priesthood. And in his journal, Lee later recalled uh, their reaction. Uh, Lee writes, with one voice they objected, the European priests, saying that the Chinese were proud, inconstant, and ungrateful, and therefore unworthy of being priests. Nonetheless, Trenon gave uh, the tonsure to the uh, three teenage boys and admitted them into minor orders as a first step toward uh, ordination. In 1710, uh, Li moved to Ayutthaya, uh, which was then the capital of uh, Siam, uh, to uh, attend a seminary run there by French missionaries. Uh, Li stayed in Siam nearly two decades. Uh, in 1725, he was ordained a priest. And in 1729, after two uh, decades away from China, he returned. Uh, he first worked along uh, the South Chinese, uh, Southeast China coast in uh, Fujian province. And finally, in 1733, he returned to Sichuan, where he worked with uh, several Chinese and European clergy. Uh, persecution erupted in Sichuan, and not only in Sichuan, but across China in 1746, and the uh, remaining European missionaries uh, fled, uh, uh, fled Sichuan for Macau. Uh, one, of, one of them was the uh, vicar apostolic, uh, Angelbert de Martilla, the bishop who had authority over Sichuan. Uh, Li remained under Martilla's authority, but the vicar apostolic returned to Europe in 1748. Uh, Martilla ordered Li, before he left, uh, Martilla ordered Li to keep a journal which is uh, the reason that we have it. It was sent, as I said, sent to, uh, by courier to Macau and from there onward to Paris. Uh, the distance and the difficulty of communication uh, meant that for all practical purposes, Li acted autonomously in Sichuan. Uh, letters from China to Europe in the 18th century typically took a year or two to reach, uh, to arrive in Europe. So Li, in effect, uh, led the Sichuan mission himself. Uh, for three years, he was the only uh, priest in the province responsible for three or 4,000 uh, Catholics scattered over uh, vast distances. Uh, eventually, two other Catholic, uh, Chinese uh, Catholic priests joined him. So with a little support and uh, no direct supervision, Li maintained the Sichuan mission for nearly a decade. He was based in the provincial capital of Chengdu, uh, but he traveled most of the time, almost constantly, to uh, go to the far-flung uh, Christian communities. Uh, much of Li's work uh, entailed administering the sacraments, baptizing children, uh, baptizing converts, hearing confessions, celebrating mass, admitting communicants uh, to the Eucharist, celebrating weddings, and performing last rites. He also supervised catechists and uh, lay congregational leaders, and also had charge of the temporal business of the church. He collected rent from tenants uh, of two houses that the church owned in Chengdu, and he rented out farmland uh, that belonged to the church outside of the city. Li also wrote. Uh, he 
published and distributed uh, religious tracts. Uh, Lee's journal is extraordinarily rich and detailed, and I can't really do justice, uh, justice to it in the time that I have this evening. Uh, so I've picked three themes I'd like to focus on uh, in Lee's diary. One is his uh, efforts to enforce canon law on marriage, also his observations on a border war on the frontier, and uh, finally his relationship with European clergy and the European uh, church hierarchy. Uh, first of all, the uh, question of canon law and marriage. Uh, the church tried not only to shape people's beliefs, but also regulated the behavior of Chinese Catholics, or at least it tried to. One of the uh, challenges that Lee faced was trying to enforce canon law regarding marriage uh, because Catholic canon law often conflicted with traditional Chinese uh, practices. Uh, one common problem was that families uh, arranged, often arranged uh, marriages for their young children, which was a violation of the church's principle that uh, marriages be based on consent. Also, the small number of Catholics in various communities also uh, posed other problems. Sometimes Catholics uh, married close relatives, the only available marriage part Catholic marriage partners, and sometimes they married non-Christians. Uh, the word that uh, for non-Christians that uh, Lee uses is uh, Gentile. Um, Late in 1747, Lee reports uh, the dispensations he had given for impediments to marriage, and I'm frankly not clear what authority he had to give such dispensations. They were typically given by a bishop, but of course the bishop was in Rome. Um, in various country districts, he writes, I have granted dispensations for various impediments to marriage. On this occasion, I also prohibited the Christians of this region from doing the following in the future without previous permission of their pastor. First, entering into marriage with a Gentile. Second, having their children married before the boys were 14 or the girls 12. Uh, third, sending their innocent daughters into the mountains to herd animals, a practice Bishop Milliner had expressly prohibited while he was still alive. Milliner was an earlier vicar apostolic of Sichuan. Uh, four, uh, bringing into their houses little girls promised in marriage to their young sons because of the obvious dangers and scandals that arise here and there among the Christians. On one occasion, remarkably, Lee seems to suggest that the church allow wives to divorce their husbands in cases of desertion. I often discover, he writes, as I pass through the mission territory, that there are young men who do not obey their parents and abandon their wives and homes going off who knows where, not letting their wives or parents know where they are. Some years ago, an imperial law was promulgated providing that three or five years after an uncontrollable young man abandons his wife, she can give a statement to the local magistrate and to both his and her parents that she is left without help from her husband and, she is permitted to, uh, and then she is permitted to marry another man. This brings up a difficulty. Can and should a Christian married woman abandoned by her husband marry another man according to the law using all due caution? The reasons I wonder are as follows. First, according to Chinese custom, such a woman cannot be supported by her parents except for a very short time such as when she returns to their home for a visit. 
Usually a daughter cannot live with her parents after marriage because they are either poor or miserly, nor can she live with her husband uh, in her husband's house when he is absent, especially when the mother-in-law is malicious and the wife cannot get along with her, or dead and she cannot enjoy her protection, nor in the protection of her father-in-law, except in the rarest cases when respectable familiarity permits it. Second, few women are strong and chaste enough that by the grace of God, their weakness does not lead them into adultery in the absence of their husbands. Uh, third, because of the lack of necessary food and clothing, they might put aside their shame and either prostitute themselves or worse than anything, use a rope or poison to kill themselves. Based on these considerations, I suggest that the church designate a certain period of time that when passed, if the wife cannot determine whether her husband is living or dead, she may marry a second time, rather than leaving her destitute in danger of ruin, ruining her body and soul. Uh, this question came up in a specific case sometime later, and uh, I'm going to read another long passage from the diary. April 8, 1749, I need to resolve a marriage case to defend the reputation of the Christians and maintain peace in the Liu family. Simon Liu, a good Christian many years ago, had his firstborn son, Jacob, marry a Gentile woman who was then baptized and named Digna. She was of a stubborn and acerbic nature. Although she was baptized, she showed no signs of being a Christian, nor did she act as a wife to her husband, nor a daughter-in-law to his parents. Nor, unless she was compelled, did she pray or fast, nor did she give up saying superstitious things. Nor, when she had Jacob as her husband, did they even consummate their marriage through sexual intercourse. So Jacob left his house and has been a wanderer and a fugitive for three years. Least of all did she show respect for Jacob's mother, thus there was perpetual quarreling between the daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, and even worse, many times she tried to hang herself and beat her head against stones and columns in madness. Here there is no peace between parents and children, no concord between husband and wife. Uh, the diary sometimes uh, gives very vivid and very sad cases of uh, this kind of uh, domestic turmoil. Uh, the law of the Chinese Empire, he writes, provides that when wives are abandoned by husbands after three or at most five years, if the husband does not return in the interval and there's no certain news on the word of the parents uh, of both husband and wife given to the local police, the woman is permitted to marry again and the first marriage in, is invalid. Based on these facts, the question is whether Simon can in good conscience give his daughter-in-law Digna to some other man in marriage either Christian or Gentile, ask for a decision for the sake of the said Simon Liu. And uh, this is the last, <coughs> mess uh, last uh, mention in the diary of this case. Uh, the marriage could, in fact, have been annulled because it had never been consummated, but such an annulment could only be authorized by the bishop. And Martelia, the bishop, was then in Rome. <coughs> Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a letter sent by courier would have taken several weeks at least to reach Macau and then a year or a year and a half to reach Rome and of course it would have taken just as long for the reply to come back. Andreas Lee found that uh, Chinese practice often conflicted with canon law and when possible he tried to, uh, tried to find ways of uh, reconciling the two. 
Uh, Lee did not fundamentally challenge the right of parents to arrange marriages for their children, but he did insist on the principle of consent, which would give the children the right to refuse to enter into such a marriage. Uh, he declared that, uh, I quote again, any Christian entering into marriage must uphold the law established by the Creator by which both sides are bound, that uh, the man and the woman contracting the marriage enter it into it by their own free will. For if either one refuses and consents not, but is compelled by parents or brothers, they are not in fact married. Therefore parents and brothers must be beware, lest they provoke the wrath of God against themselves. And brothers would typically be involved if the, if the parents had died, and uh, so an older brother would arrange for the marriage of a younger sister, for example. As far as Lee was concerned, Chinese Catholics could follow uh, Chinese practices as long as they did not undermine the Catholic faith or the, uh, the principle of consent in marriage. But the very principle of consent uh, challenged traditional Chinese marriage, implying that the marriage was a contract between two individuals rather than two families. And it also undermined uh, the authority of parents over their adult children. Uh, Catholic marriage meant that uh, the couple constituted a new family rather than belonging to a perpetual corporate family. And finally, the principles of consent and mutual fidelity Gave, uh, for both women and men, uh, gave uh, the wife as well as the husband uh, rights in marriage. Uh, Lee's uh, attempts to enforce Catholic norms uh, in marriage met with uh, mixed success. Well, let me move on to um, Lee's observations about the Jinchuan War. Uh, this is a war that I'm guessing uh, nobody here has heard of except possibly some of the Chinese in the audience, and I'm not even sure about that. This is one of the most expensive and uh, bloody wars of the 18th century, but it was in a fairly remote area even for China. Uh, the Jinchuan, or the Jiarong, were a subgroup of uh, Tibetans, a tribal federation independent of both Tibet and uh, China. Uh, China fought two wars in the 18th century to subdue them. And here's a map of the area. Uh, Chengdu is located here, and the um, Jiaorong lived here about 100 miles uh, to the west uh, up on the um, uh, Tibetan Plateau. Uh, Chengdu, the provincial capital, is located at the uh, far western edge of the uh, Sichuan Basin. Um, In 1749, uh, China won a very hard-fought partial victory over the Jinchuan. Uh, this war mobilized about 70,000 soldiers and uh, 200,000 military laborers, mostly from Sichuan. And Li's journal provides a unique uh, perspective on the uh, first of these two wars. The second was fought in the 1770s. Uh, but Li's journal showed how this war affected ordinary people. Uh, Lee's first mention of the war was in his diary entry of October 9th, 1747. Uh, the soldier, Johannes Baptista uh, Lu, he writes, sent one month ago to take military supplies to the war, has returned safely from the battlefield. He says that the war is being fought with tremendous difficulty because of the mountainous terrain in that region. Four months later, he writes, 
I heard of a terrible massacre of many of the ch in the Chinese army in which many officers and men were killed by the barbarians. In other words, the Jinchuan. Uh, some were cut to pieces or maimed by cold and hunger. Others dashed themselves to pieces off the cliffs, unable to bear the onslaught of the enemy. A great many officers of the ravaged army hanged themselves. Troops have been summoned and new soldiers enrolled to take the place of the dead. Uh, the Chinese people groan openly over the increased burden. Rebels everywhere stir up trouble. A rumor has spread that the emperor has died. That rumor, incidentally, was false. Uh, the emperor lived for another 52 years. <laughs> A couple of days later, Lee writes, during the days when the bad news of the battle came, many of the houses in the city were put up for sale, and it was impossible to sell the two houses belonging to the mission, nor could we lease them or borrow money using them for security. A week later, Lee is unable to leave the city to administer last rites to a dying woman. He writes, uh, he writes uh, that he was unable to leave. Because of the troops being sent to the war these days, horses and mules have been seized at the city gates just as in 1746, before the White Lotus rebels were destroyed. Gambling and drinking are forbidden. To Lee, this war was evidence of God's wrath at, for the recent persecution. It seems clear to me, he writes, that this and other similar catastrophes arising each day presage the vengeance of the true and living God against the persecutors of the church. Indeed, aside from those massacred by the barbarians, starved to death or fallen off cliffs, many soldiers return useless from the war, frostbitten by the cold and maimed in their hands and feet. At the end of April, Lee once again sees God's role in the war, perhaps with great and good God demanding vengeance for the sins of the Chinese especially for the persecution undertaken in 1746, a single barbarian will put to flight a thousand Chinese because their leaders united against the Lord, against his Christ, against his ministers, and also against the faithful of Jesus Christ. One thing that I find intriguing here is that Lee refers to the Chinese in the third person, uh, reflecting a complicated sense of his own identity, and this is something I will return to. About a month later, Lee recounts an incident that shows popular discontent toward the war. The widowed wives of soldiers fallen, the, fallen in the war who had not received the pension owed them all came in mourning clothes to the government offices complaining loudly for the injustices they had borne. The officials consoled them so that they would not arouse unrest and dissatisfaction in the city. The people are weighed down by many burdens, whether taxes or labor. Horses and mules belonging to farmers are kept to carry rice, wheat, and beans for food for the soldiers. This uh, first Jinchuan War ended in, uh, with a partial victory in 1749. The military commander uh, blamed for the setbacks in the war had also been involved in the persecution of Catholics in 1746, and Lee was not sorry to see his fate. The leader of the persecution of Catholics throughout the empire, Na Qin, was executed at the emperor's order on the battlefield. With three blows of the sword, his head was severed and exposed to view, Lee writes. But God's vengeance against the persecutors was much, uh, matched by his mercy toward the faithful. 
Almost everyone, everyone returning from the war, whether soldier or merchant, he reports, brought back pestilence and spread it to his family, and both in the city and the countryside, many have died. God has specially protected us, for no Christian soldier or merchant has brought home this illness. Uh, finally, I'd like to address Lee's relationship with the European missionaries. Uh, the Catholic mission was a multinational enterprise and Lee worked closely with uh, European colleagues before they fled the persecution of 1746. Uh, Lee began his uh, journal at a critical time for the church in China. Uh, soon after the execution of a Spanish Dominican uh, bishop in Southeast China, uh, a man Lee had worked with when he was working in that area, uh, someone who Lee had become close friends with as well as three other Dominicans and two Jesuit missionaries. This was actually the only time in the 18th century that uh, anyone was executed for Christianity. In the early 19th century, it became uh, much worse. But on uh, April 29, 1748, before learning about their martyrdom, Lee writes, I celebrated Mass on the feast day of St. Peter the Martyr and hum humbly and earnestly begged merciful God to preserve this Chinese mission, reduced to extreme misery, and mostly for the salvation of the most illustrious and most reverent Father Sans, one uh, joined with me in close friendship, once joined with me in close friendship, Bishop and Vicar Apostolic of Fujian, who with four other Spanish missionaries, most excellent members of the Dominican order, having first endured various tortures, were condemned to capital punishment of their glory and martyrdom and consummation of their struggle for the faith. I have thus so far been unable to learn from the officials, nor receive any relevant letters from Macau. Therefore, I cannot infer how, one, how our Bishop de Martelia fares, nor other priests living in Macau, whom I often have in mind when I approach the sacrifice of the mass, trembling. Uh, China, so in this particular case, uh, Lee is thinking particularly of uh, Bishop Sanz, who was martyred, uh, someone who he was close to. Uh, Chinese priests worked closely with European missionaries, and sometimes in the case, as in the case of Lee and uh, Bishop Sanz, they, uh, they developed close uh, friendships. Yet the relationship between uh, Chinese and European clergy was not always collegial and it was always unequal. Uh, Chinese priests served under European vicars apostolic. These were titular bishops who had, uh, uh, who governed a mission territory. European missionaries in 18th century China, simply by virtue of being European, had authority over their Chinese collaborators. Uh, the British historian uh, Charles Boxer observed that the uh, relationship between European missionaries and Chinese priests often took the form of horse and rider with the white man as the rider. Uh, European priests thought of Chinese clergy as playing an auxiliary role and only in the absence of uh, Chinese uh, of Europeans did Chinese clergy ever enjoy any degree of autonomy. Uh, because European priests were forced to flee Sichuan in uh, 1746, Li enjoyed that autonomy for about a decade although I'm not sure if enjoyed is the right word. Um, but after there was one uh, French Catholic priest who made it to Sichuan in that period uh, for a few days before he was captured and expelled again. 
But uh, the European presence was reestablished in April 1756 when a young French priest, uh, Francois Potier, uh, reached Sichuan. Potier was new to Sichuan, he was new to China, he spoke Chinese very badly, uh, and he and Li spoke to each other uh, in Latin. At that point, uh, Potier was 30 years old. He had just turned 30, and he had been a priest for two and a half years. At that point, Li was uh, more than twice Potier's age, and uh, Li had been ordained a priest before Potier was born. Nevertheless, Potier had been named Vicar General of the Sichuan Mission and assumed uh, authority over his senior colleague, and he soon exercised that authority. Uh, Potier accused Andreas Lee of laxity in administering the sacraments. A Catholic widow had arranged the marriage of her daughter to a non-Christian. Uh, Lee had absolved her and admitted her into communion. But according to Potier, Lee should have uh, denied sacraments to both the mother and the daughter because they had not obtained dispensation for this marriage. If someone commits a mortal sin, Potier said, the priest who gives them absolution becomes an accomplice to the sacrilege. Therefore, we must be wary lest we, through do, uh, too great condescension toward the Christians, damn ourselves in the act of encouraging sin. Well, as we have seen, uh, Lee was concerned uh, for a long time with enforcing canon law regarding marriage. He had written a pastoral letter five years earlier concerning the marriage of Catholics to non-Catholics, uh, in which he wrote, uh, because of the danger of falling into apostasy, parents and brothers of Christians must never contract marriages with Gentiles except in extreme necessity. If there are no suitable Christian families and difficulties arise in contracting a marriage and for, for that reason the family wants to enter into a marriage with a Gentile, before the marriage is con contracted, the Christian must inform the local catechist who will investigate and decide whether the uh, couple may marry parents and brothers should not uh, presume to decide on their own, lest they bring damnation to themselves or their children. I also affirm that when extreme ne necessity requires a Christian daughter to join in marriage with a Gentile, before the contract is confirmed, she must be assured in the presence of witnesses that she will be permitted to follow the, the teachings of the church after her marriage so that her husband cannot secretly compel her to desert the holy laws and follow perverse religions. Uh, one thing I should note is that it was assumed if a Catholic man married a non-Catholic woman because of his authority in the marriage, uh, the wife would follow his faith. Uh, the problem was if a Catholic woman married a non-Catholic man, um, the problem would be reversed. Uh, technically, marriages with non-Catholics were permitted only with the dispensation of, the, of a bishop, but after 1746, of course, there was no bishop in Sichuan. Lee, interestingly enough, um, that's a picture of Potier, by the way. I didn't mean to show it quite yet, but this is what he looked like some 30 years later. Uh, Lee accepted Potier's admonitions, but pointed out that Christians in the province, some Christians in the province, had not seen a priest for 10 or 15 years, and this is not surprising considering how scattered they were and uh, the fact that Lee for a long time was solely responsible for them. It should not be surprising, he wrote, that the widow, widow was ignorant of the requirement for dispensation when, as he wrote, 
Even catechists, who should know more about their religion than these women, incessantly violate both the commandments of God and the church. And Lee thought it uh, unjust, unjust that Potier should uh, charge him with a mortal sin for administering the sacraments in such circumstances. In a letter to Paris, Potier complained about Chinese priests who felt that French missionaries treated them harshly. He wrote, these gentlemen are persuaded that promoted to the priestly dignity, they should be treated with the same regard as French priests. And if they perceive the contrary, they shout everywhere that the French priests regard them as their domestics rather than as their collaborators in holy ministry. And I think this is actually a very ra uh, accurate description of the way that, uh, of the position of Chinese priests. In any case, Lee himself had no choice to, uh, but to accept Potier's uh, authority. That year, in a note to a French missionary in Macau, Lee wrote that European precedence was justified, and I quote again, on the condition that European priests be animated by the Holy Spirit, like the apostles of Christ of old, that they act as models for the clergy, not their rulers, that the Chinese clergy be always humble, obedient, and docile, then they should without doubt pay the honor due to European priests, even the youngest, as the primary spring from which they draw the div divine charisma. Uh, by this time, uh, there had been no vicar apostolic in Sichuan for many years. And in 16, uh, 1762, Rome uh, named a vicar apostolic to uh, Sichuan, uh, Pierre-Jean Carvet, who was the superior of the seminary in Siam. Carvey declined the position and suggested that it go to Andreas Lee. Uh, Carvey wrote, Andreas Lee would fulfill this function better than I would. This venerable priest is, according to everyone's testimony, the soul and pillar of the mission. The action of crowning his long travails would revive the nearly extinguished faith of Sichuan. And because he is very old, this marshal's baton would come to him near the moment of death, and Father Potier would succeed him before long. <laughs> well, um, had Rome accepted this proposal, uh, Lee would have been, become the second Chinese bishop. Uh, one was consecrated in uh, 1685. He would have been the second Chinese uh, bishop and the uh, only one consecrated between 1685 and 1926. Uh, Carvey, of course, uh, assumed that Lee, if he were to become a bishop, would not be a bishop very long. Uh, Lee was uh, by then in poor health, uh, yet uh, he survived. Uh, Lee was still active enough to establish a modest seminary in Chengdu two years later. Uh, he named the seminary the Seminary of the Nativity because uh, the very poor building he was in reminded him of the stable in which Jesus was born. <laughs> and there he uh, taught church doctrine, Latin, history, geography, and Chinese to about a dozen students, uh, sort of a Carl Melby of his time. Um, in fact, Ali lived another 11 years. Uh, nonetheless, it was uh, Potier, not Lee, who was named Vicar Apostolic. And here's a picture of him, uh, of Potier. Um, done in uh, 1787 when Potier was a little bit more mature. Uh, Lee died on January 23, 1774 at the age of 80. 
Uh, he had won the respect of his colleagues, both French and Chinese. Potier wrote, he has done many works for the missions, for the mission, his morals were always pure and honest, and to the end he maintained an untiring zeal. Another missionary, uh, Jean-Martin Moyer, wrote that Lee was extraordinary, at least for a Chinese priest, and the qualification, I think, reveals a lot about Moyer. Um, Moyer wrote, Nonest inventus similis ili, uh, none will be found like him. He wrote this in Latin, but the rest of the uh, letter was in French. Lee was graced with the most beautiful talents. He wrote many books, suffered many persecutions and torments. Moya added, the other Chinese priests are much inferior to him. In a, a review of a book I contributed to, the Hong Kong Protestant uh, leader Franklin Wu writes, Father Fran uh, Andreas Lee of Sichuan did not maintain the tension between Chi being Chinese and Catholic as defined that time by Rome. Lee was truly Catholic at the expense of being truly Chinese. Uh, I would not go that far, but uh, there certainly was a tension between being Catholic and especially being a Catholic priest and being Chinese. Uh, Lee had a long experience with Europeans. He first encountered them as a child, of course, when he was turned over to Basse to be educated. He spent two decades outside of China in Siam and uh, he was keenly aware of being Chinese and resented the slights of European missionaries. At the same time, of course, Lee was a member of a worldwide Catholic communion, a priest whose office had been passed to him through apostolic succession. Uh, and he found that sometimes being Catholic conflicted with his being Chinese. Uh, Lee's complicated relationship with uh, the Europeans uh, highlights the ambivalence of his various identities. As I mentioned uh, earlier, Lee sometimes refers to the Chinese in the third person, those Chinese as opposed to we Christians. Uh, Lee was proud of his facility in Latin and uh, thought it absolutely necessary that Chinese uh, clergy have a command of the language. He writes, already the old priests know from long experience that the Chinese, um, even educated ones, are exposed to the contempt of the Europeans. How much worse would it be if our own clergy were without culture, he asks defensively, as if China did not have a culture of its own. Uh, to most Chinese, uh, Christianity was a foreign religion in China, not a faith with universal claims. And even today, it's sometimes referred to in China as Yang Jiao, which means foreign religion. Uh, one of my sources uh, published four years ago, I have a copy around uh, right here, this, which I can flash here. Um, this is the first of a three, of three volume collection of uh, reprinted materials from uh, the Imperial Archives. And the title translates as uh, Archival Materials on the Activities of Western Catholicism in China in the Early Qing Period. Uh, the title refers to uh, Catholicism as Xiyang Tianju Jiao, another literally Western foreign Catholicism, even though many of the documents actually deal with Chinese Catholics. Uh, this implicitly raises the issue of cultural imperialism and uh, this is a concept that I think is often used very loosely and recklessly and simplistically. Um, 
there are 31,000 McDonald's restaurants around the world, and this is sometimes seen as an example of American cultural imperialism, um, but there are 35,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States. And uh, I just, for the record, I want to say that I think the, uh, these Chinese restaurants enrich rather than uh, subvert American uh, culinary culture. Uh, but in terms of the uh, Christian mission movement in China, um, there is an undeniable connection, especially in the late 19th century, between uh, Christian missions and Western power. In an essay about American missionaries, American missionaries in China, the historian uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. argues that the missionary effort was, and I quote here, not only incredibly audacious and ambitious, but also incredibly arrogant. In a similar vein, uh, another scholar who many of you have heard of, uh, Martin Marty, writes that the missionary movement grew out of an impulse to reduce the world in the name of Christ to the faith and culture of the superior West. There is a lot of truth to these observations, and certainly um, the uh, evidence of this in the writings of French missionaries in 18th century China. But this was a different situa situation from uh, after the Opium War in the 19th century, when uh, both Catholic and Protestant missions enjoyed the protection of unequal treaties imposed by Western military power. Uh, Western missionary missions in uh, late eight, uh, 19th century China were complicit, willingly or not, in Western imperialism in China. But in Li's lifetime, the West did not have the power to impose its uh, will over China. Uh, Chinese Catholics and European missionaries alike were subject to conditions set by the Chinese state. And uh, moreover, a simplistic notion of Christian missions as cultural imperialism fails to take into account the agency of Chinese converts themselves the voluntary nature of uh, cultural and religious change and the ways in which uh, religion can be indigenized. Uh, to Chinese Christians, uh, the foreign provenance of their faith was irrelevant. They believed it uh, to be true in all places at all times, and that was true of Andreas Lee. Uh, he sometimes had conflicts with European missionaries and sometimes with Chinese authorities, but he himself was both authentically Chinese and authentically Christian. So that's what I had to say. Uh, Nachin. Nachin. Yes. Sounds Manchurian. So, um, he was a Manchu, yes. Is there a difference between uh, a Manchu and a Han in the diary of these? Um, he doesn't seem to make much uh, distinction. Um, as a matter of fact, he refers to uh, Nachin as Na, as if it were you know, a typical Chinese surname. Um, I had to look up Nachin to find out who he was. Um, so he doesn't really pay too much distinction. Uh, uh, attention to uh, the differences between uh, Han and Manchus. Uh, most of the people, almost everyone he came into contact himself with was Han, and uh, the officials he came into contact with, he was arrested two or three times, and they were, it would have been uh, district magistrates, uh, Han officials. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Ed. I had thought that um, the early missionaries in China, the Jesuits, um, were very accommodating, or tried to be quite accommodating yeah. to the local, and, and in fact got into trouble for mm-hmm. being too much. Yeah. So is it very, what was the difference there? Was there a different area mm-hmm. of China? Uh, it was actually a uh, difference between uh, different uh, religious orders. Uh, the Jesuits, uh, as Ed said, the uh, Jesuits promoted a policy of accommodation with uh, local Chinese culture. They were the ones who promoted a view of the rites that they regarded uh, rituals honoring ancestors as being uh, not religious rituals, worship of ancestors, but in, uh, instead a kind of veneration which they thought would be acceptable. And uh, they also uh, respected Confucius. They had uh, a high regard for Confucius. Other missionaries were bitterly opposed to this view, and they were the ones who went out <coughs> in the rights controversy in the early 18th century. And Lee was trained by the Missions uh, who uh, They were the ones who were uh, bitterly opposed to the Jesuit position. Uh, Lee, at one point uh, in his diary, uh, says that the According, uh, he had heard from some of the Spanish Dominicans that the Jesuits were the Antichrist. And um, Lee didn't seem to disagree with that. Um, one of the interesting, really interesting things about this is that uh, in the 1930s, the Vatican changed its opinion on these rites and came to the conclusion that it was possible to honor the ancestors as long as it was uh, veneration as opposed to worship. And I went to a uh, conference on the Chinese rights controversy at the University of San Francisco in 1994. This is a Jesuit institution. And I had a feeling they were sort of celebrating the fact that they had won this battle. (laughs) And at the end of uh, the uh, conference, there was a mass at the Church of St. Ignatius, named after Ignatius Loyola, um, with a liturgy in Chinese to honor the ancestors. So I, I went to this uh, ceremony and I honored my Northern European uh, Protestant ancestors in the Chinese Catholic liturgy. And <laughs> as far as I know, my ancestors had no objections. <laughs> but yeah, Lee was, um, uh, another thing I could have talked about if I had lots more time is Lee's attempts to enforce uh, the uh, church's rulings on rights and I have an article I actually, actually I've written on the subject. I can give it to you to read in, at your leisure. Yes, Louie. Um, I have a question by a community who is authentic Chinese and authentic right. Christian, Patrick. Um, was he educated in the Confucian classics? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, he was, uh, but he was educated in uh, Chinese classics by French missionaries. <laughs> and, uh, so when he was turned over to the French missionaries, uh, they uh, taught him about half the time they were reading uh, uh, Latin works, the, uh, scripture, the church fathers, and the other half of the time they read the Sushu, uh, the four books, the, uh, these are the Confucian classics, the Analects, the uh, Mencius, the book of um, uh, the Doctrine of the Mean and the Great Learning. And uh, it's interesting because the, uh, the French missionaries regarded these works as being suspiciously Confucian. They were. Um, <laughs> well, they were Confucian, not suspiciously. But, uh, but they were the basis of a classical education. And uh, so uh, Lee was uh, given uh, sort of your basic uh, uh, classical education. 
Um, the only thing he did, he wrote quite a bit in Chinese. He wrote uh, religious tracts. Um, they are described in his diary, but none of them have survived. Um, the only Chinese that I've seen written by him is uh, some Chinese characters written in the margins of his diary, and the characters are correct. Uh, this is unlike uh, a couple of other Chinese priests, uh, one who was, uh, who was ed uh, educated in uh, Naples and went back to China and had a very poor command of Chinese, of written Chinese, and his Chinese, uh, there are a lot of mistakes in his Chinese characters, but Li did have uh, your basic uh, classical Confucian education. Yes? Yeah. You brought one example of when one came over and he spoke very quickly in Chinese, so yeah. communicated in Latin. But for those French priests, knowing how much the French wrote their language, yeah. did they talk, did they communicate in French, or were they switched to Chinese? Or? That's uh, an interesting question. Lee seems to have often used uh, Latin as uh, his spoken language with European missionaries, but he also knew French. Uh, there, the diary is almost entirely in Latin, except for a few sentences, uh, which there are a, a few sentences in uh, French, which seems to be these few. Judging on these few sentences, that seems to be fairly accurate. He wrote it in Chengdu without a French dictionary, and uh, after not speaking French for many years, um, there are actually also a couple of words in uh, Spanish. Uh, he complains that some of the Christians are merely washed people, in other words, baptized, and but not uh, actual Christians. He calls them hombres lavados, washed people. Um, so he did speak, uh, but I, I, my impression is that with uh, his uh, French colleagues, he would speak probably either Latin or Chinese. Yeah, Rika. Oh, sure. Yeah, I would say I, I really had a deep fascination with the subject, which if I hadn't had that, I would I would have given up a long time ago. How long did it take? I'm still working on this diary. I've read, I'd say, I've read the first third of it very thoroughly, and I have a kind of a rough, very rough translation of much of it. And the rest of it, I've read very not so thoroughly. Um, and uh, in some of my articles, I you know look for certain passages that it has an index which helps. But uh, my training, of course, was in Chinese history, and uh, in graduate school, I uh, I had to take Chinese, both modern and classical Chinese, and Japanese, and I had to pass a reading test in one European language. I took a reading test in both French and German, hoping I'd pass one of them. And at that time, I. 
pass both by the skin of my teeth. At that time, I didn't expect to use any French sources in my uh, research, and in my dissertation, I, uh, I used a few, but I would, uh, then when I came to this topic, I found one of the great frustrations is it's very hard to find Chinese sources, so almost all are in French or Latin. And I find Latin a fascinating language. I just wish that in the 18th century, the Roman Catholic Church used English as its official language. <laughs> <laughs> but they did. Yeah, Bing. I have a question. The French mission, why they uh, uh, went to Sichuan to have their kind of, uh, you know, for their preaching? Yeah. And the, the second question is that when you mentioned the Jinchuan battle between mm -hmm. the Chinese and Tibetan, is that a war? It, is that a war between the two different tribes of the Jinchuan? One is a oh, big one, one is a yeah, Da Jinchuan, Xiao Jinchuan. Yeah. Uh, which one did he describe in his... Uh, this is a Da Jinchuan, the big Jinchuan. Uh -huh. okay. uh, the Jinchuan were the, uh, kind of a tribal federation of uh -huh. uh, people who are, they spoke a language, they, they still exist actually, they speak a dialect or not a dialect, I, I don't know anything about Tibetan except that apparently uh, People from Laza can't understand their dialect. It's from, you know, Kam, um, the uh, very western, part, very eastern part of Tibet. Uh, but the uh, the Jinchuan controlled uh, the uh, access between uh, Sichuan and Tibet, and this is why the Qing wanted to bring them under control. And when the French missionary, oh. you know, when they chose uh, Sichuan as the yeah. province to go, right? Is it because uh, Sichuan is a Historically, it's sufficient promise and cut off from the imperial kind of administration yeah. or control. Well, they, uh, I think the, the, uh, when the Catholic missionaries went into China, they, uh, they, the, gradually there was kind of a division uh, of China to different mission uh, jurisdictions. And the, the first missionaries who went to Sichuan were at the end of the Ming in the uh, 1640s, two of them, who, uh, two Jesuits. Uh, one Italian and one Portuguese who got captured by Zhang Shenzhong and managed to survive, but uh, the Catholic mission was uh, obliterated. Then in 1702, um, one German, one Italian, and two French missionaries uh, went to Sichuan. The two French missionaries for, were from the Missions Entrecher, and the other two were Lazarists. And the, uh, the Lazarists and the Missions Entrecher fought over the uh, jurisdiction over Sichuan. Uh, this is when Martial went back to uh, Rome. This is one of the reasons he went to Rome was to get this territory for the Mission Saint-Tropez. But uh, one of the things that is really amazing is how much these different Catholic missionaries fought with each other over <laughs> territory. Thank you. Oh yes. Uh -huh. yeah. In that case, when the Christians came
That's a very interesting question, and I'll, I'll try to keep it short because it's something I think I could talk about about an hour, and I have a feeling people don't want to listen that long. But um, there, there uh, had been a Christian presence in China before that, in uh, the as early as the seventh century, some Nestorians uh, had established a presence in China. The Nestorians were mainly uh, they were mainly marginal. Uh, they well, they were a tiny minority, and they were also mostly non-Chinese, uh, uh, Central Asians. Uh, that the Nestorian, Nestorian Christian, that also later on some of the Mongols became Nestorian Christians, like the mother of Kublai Khan, uh, among others. But uh, the Nestorian Christianity never established any kind of uh, real permanent presence in China itself. Uh, by this time, it had disappeared. Uh, the, um, so when uh, I'd say uh, the Christian presence in China really began with Matteo Ricci in the late 16th century when they began to make converts among the Chinese. The question of indigenizing Chinese Christianity is a fascinating subject. And uh, one of the problems that, uh, well, Protestants and Catholics have gone in somewhat different directions. Uh, both, of the, uh, both Protestantism and Catholicism, of course, were brought to China by foreign missionaries. Within Protestantism, a kind of indigenous Protestant tradition developed in the early 20th century, and the Protestant, Chinese Protestants gradually uh, secured some degree of autonomy from Western missions. Um, for the Catholics, of course, one, the Catholic Church is a different kind of organization, and uh, uh, the in the 1950s, after the communists took power in China, uh, they forced all religious organizations to break their ties with the outside world. All they tolerated uh, legal religions, including the Catholic Church. And so you had some, uh, you had Catholic bishops uh, who decided that it was they, the way that the church could survive was by uh, cooperating with the regime. Uh, this meant breaking ties with Rome. Uh, I'm a Protestant myself, uh, but it seems to me that part of Catholic identity is being part of a worldwide communion with, headed by the Pope. Uh, there's a Chinese, uh, a former Chinese uh, uh, official bishop in Beijing uh, who died just a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Bishop Fu Tieshan, who uh, quoted uh, scripture saying, you know, the last shall be first and so forth and used this to uh, justify the, uh, the idea that the Bishop of Rome does not have authority over other bishops. And this is an argument that makes perfectly good sense if you're a Protestant. <laughs> um, the uh, Catholic Church in China uh, is, well, I don't want to go into uh, a long detail about this, but um, the Vatican regards the church in China as, well, bishops that have been consecrated by, uh, under the, the so-called Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association have been consecrated according to apostolic succession. Uh, the Vatican <coughs> regards these consecrations as illicit but valid. <laughs> and uh, this is actually a distinction that makes good sense, but the Vatican is basically trying to maintain some possibility of a reunion, reunification of the Catholic Church in China with the worldwide Catholic Church. 
Uh, summer before last, uh, when I was in China, I went to a, a Catholic church in Hauhat in Inner Mongolia, and uh, Dick Bodman's wife uh, had some friends in Hauhat who uh, introduced me to the uh, Catholic priest at that church. I went to, I uh, had a long talk with them, went into his office, and there above his desk was a big portrait of Pope Benedict. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, uh, we recognize the spiritual authority of the Pope, although uh, not as ecclesiastical authority.